This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. That's where we are. I'm uh, Mike Hussein, Director of the Center for Leadership and Change. And I'm here with Ann Greenhall, my co-host and good friend, who is the Deputy Director of the McNulty Leadership Program, also at the Wharton School. I want to remind everybody that new episodes of this program premiere every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern here right on Business Radio Sirius XM channel 132. Don't forget to follow us also on Twitter at SXM Business. So before we get going, Ann, just a question. How was the week that was for you? Mike, it was a great week, but actually I'm looking forward to July 4th, Independence Day. Imagine. (laughs) Yes, and uh, when we think about leadership in action, there's a lot to be said uh, about our founding fathers, And I know that you recently, you've got a new book out called The Edge, and I think your last chapter is about George Washington. And I I won't put you too much on the spot, but I know from speaking with you that you made a wonderful point and that he was essentially a self-made man. He did not have the experience that we we might expect in military or in government politics. Yeah, well, it's a really important point point the way you put it there you you don't have to you don't have to have fancy degrees although we recommend you to get at least one of our degrees right (laughs) in any case uh, George Washington I think it was fourth grade he dropped out of school had no sustained military experience Uh, there was no West Point at the time of course Um, and yet he took command of the of the Continental Army and seven years later uh, carried it to victory at Yorktown and uh, is a leader of the ages, of course, and one of our founding fathers. And that's kind of what the end is what the show is about here for people who are just simply working on their own leadership. Uh, we try to talk with people who've got ideas on how to how to become a better leader, um, often learned by just hearing people talk about what they've done uh, to make their leadership come to life. So anyway, there it is. Uh, Anne, a, a personal question. Uh, how are you celebrating um, the weekend oh. in which we honor our forefathers and mothers? Well, so good of you to ask, Mike. Well, since uh, leadership is very much about service to others, uh, I am a longtime uh, supporter of our local civic And I'm here to tell you that I am the chair of the Fourth of July committee. So I am the hostess for our community. We're having a very modest post-pandemic comeback event with the parade, pony rides, petting zoo, foot races, t-shirts, and we are honoring a local crossing guard who just retired. And Mike, you will uh, will know that the plaque uh, was written by me because I'm honoring him for his leadership, for taking charge of street corners for the safe passage of our children, and also for great kindness that he showed to all of the children and their families and their pets, including dogs large and small, because in his pockets, he always had biscuits, big biscuits for the big dogs and little biscuits for the little dogs. 
So we are honoring uh, William V. Hearn for his leadership and service to the community. Thank you for asking, Mike. Uh, and I want to point out to our leaders, our, our well, our listeners who are leaders, that you not only teach leadership, but you are a practice leader yourself. So thank you. <laughs> well, thank you, Mike. <laughs> thank you for thank putting you. the uh, July 4th event and your community together. Uh, it is our privilege to welcome our guest uh, onto the show, Dennis Carey. Dennis, great to actually have you back on the program. Thank you, Mike. Great to be here. Great to see you. Uh, Dennis, it's um, very good to have you back for many reasons. Uh, life has moved on. The last time we had you on the program was pre-COVID. Life so different now from then. So it's not that it's a new era, but boy, it feels very different. We'll probably talk about that um, a little bit later. But in the meantime, I want to tell listeners that Dennis Carey is uh, author, co-author of a new book. Listen carefully to the title, Talent, Strategy, Risk, Colon, how investors and boards are redefining TSR. And of course, TSR historically has been defined as total shareholder return. So Dennis, you and your co-author seem to be ups, uh, kind of upending a very long-standing paradigm. So with that said, by way of introduction to the book, Dennis, let's talk for just a minute about your co-authors, and then we're going to talk about the book. So it's with uh, of course, two very well-known people, Bill McNabb and Ram Sharan, but some listeners may not, a whole, may not know a whole lot about them. So just to remind us who they are, and then equally important here, why did you collaborate with them? Well, first of all, Bill McNabb is uh, well-known in investment circles. He was the retired, now retired uh, chairman and CEO of Vanguard, which manages well over $6.5 trillion. That's with a T trillion dollars and um, is a close second to uh, BlackRock, which I'm sure all of the listeners have heard of those two great institutions. Um, and that represents the major player in what we call the passive or index fund environment. Um, and Ram Sharan, who uh, Mike, you and I wrote another book with, Talent Wins some years back. Uh, Ram is best known as the roving uh, consultant to CEOs around the world. Uh, didn't even own a home for many, many years. Uh, traveled uh, by plane virtually to every continent, literally every other week. And as written now, I've lost track, but it's in the high 30s. I think it, this was yep. his 38th book and uh, now sold over 4 million copies. And, and Mike, I, I think the reason that I partner with people like this, not only do I learn a lot, but it reinforces one of the real critical tests of leadership, and that is humility. I am, you know, every time I work with people who are smarter than I am, and there are a lot of them out there, um, I, I learn a ton. And that was my motivation for partnering with Bill and with Rom. We, we quite frankly and quite honestly didn't come up with a title right away. Uh, we sort of evolved in that direction after looking at what we consider to be a, a dynamic, uh, almost collision between short-term holders, which we refer in the literature as activists, for want of a better term, they tend to be more short-term um, players, although that's not always the case. But many are, you know, two or three percent shareholders, and they tend to have very outsized influence uh, on the impact that they have on talent, strategy, and risk uh, as they evaluate companies. And the collision, which was historically a pretty brutal one between the long-termers 
the people like Bill McNabb at Vanguard and the short timers has now evolved into a sort of a nexus of concern and focus around the three areas that boards really need to focus on if you wanna create long-term shareholder value um, and hence the reason for the title, how investors and boards are rethinking TSR in the context of strategies around how to build a better bench and build a better team and, and all the things we've read about for so many years around talent as well, strategy and of course risk, uh, which is not always a four letter word, by the way, there are risk opportunities that we also uh, examine as part of our inquiry into this uh, with this book. Dennis, that's great. I really appreciate hearing about your co-authors. And let me just say a couple words about you as one of the three co-authors. Uh, Dennis, you are vice chair of Corn Ferry. Uh, I think everybody knows the name Corn Ferry. Uh, not everybody appreciates that it is the largest executive search firm in the world. And Dennis, in particular, and you, Dennis, in your role there, responsible for many, many of the premier searches for uh, new chief executives and new board members in American and actually some non-American firms as well. And Dennis, just to personalize that a little bit, every time I read that a company is looking for a new CEO, I, I think uh, you are probably as busy as a bee uh, to trying to find uh, the right person to come in. And, and that experience, of course, no names are ever named, um, is, is I know very much in the back of your thinking, what does it take for a CEO to run a company? What is a board? What does it take for a board to partner with the CEO? Last thing to say about you, Dennis, is you are the founder of what is called the CEO Academy, a longstanding annual event for new chief executives and some who are seasoned. Uh, and this is interesting to further strengthen their leadership as they take um, ownership of a company. And it's such a reminder that leadership is a lifelong learned skill set, and people even at that level are, are doing their best and Dennis has provided a format for that to happen. So Dennis, with that, I'm gonna actually turn the baton over to Anne who's gonna get us going on, on the book. Thank you, Mike and Dennis, again, such a pleasure and honor to have you here. Uh, Dennis, can, was there a particular moment that inspired you to launch the writing of this book? I'm wondering if the business roundtable discussion, for example, was important. Yeah, that clearly was one of the major factors for starting this inquiry. And I appreciate the question, Anne, because I sometimes when I get that question, I'm not sure the answer other than to say, there are probably a multiplicity of forces that sort of co uh, coincided, if you will. Um, one is that I wanted to work with someone who has, quote, been there, done that from the investor side. Because, you know, if as you think about the role of boards of directors, and, and many directors forget this, they have, they are representing the owners, the investors of these companies. And sometimes they may uh, pause a bit and forget that they are the fiduciaries of, of, of the investor. And uh, listening to the investor is really important. And uh, companies have been struggling with how best to listen and also how best to communicate with investors. And I think that the, uh, to your point, the business roundtables pronouncement, which was signed on by most of the major companies in the US, uh, which basically, basically said, look, 
we're not only here to serve the share interest of shareholder value in terms of wealth creation. We have other responsibilities as companies in our society. And it, and it coincided, Anne, with, with in part the answer to your question, and that is what I see as the phenomenal rise of a new investor class, very concerned about the environment, society, uh, the governance of those corporations. And, and I loved your analogy talking about the crossing guard, but also the enhanced focus and interest in employees. I stick to this company, whether they own shares or not. And we sort of, as Bill and Ram and I sat for many hours, sort of reflecting on what's different? How's it changing? Um, one big one was, as I mentioned, the collision between the short term and the long term, how to balance those competing interests, right? So that was sort of chart number one. Chart number two is what's different now um, in terms of how boards ought to be responding to investor concerns around the issue of talent, strategy, and risk, and how will that, if you get it right, it will naturally lead to enhanced value to shareholders, and you almost have to pay attention to those three arcs to get it right. And, and by the way, I think you know one of the other driving forces, I mentioned ESG, and I just mentioned the shift in investors, the dramatic shift. This is not a subtle shift. This is a dramatic shift. And Mike is an expert in investor capitalism. He's written books about it. He's probably the, the um, par excellence, uh, uh, brilliant leader in terms of thinking about how investors behave and why they behave the way they do. Um, as we thought about the shift in investor to more long-term holders, we now have over 50% of stock held by the long-term players who have been passive, which means relatively quiet. They sit on the sidelines, you know, they clap when necessary, but they've not been as involved uh, until recently as they have. And I think activists sort of pushed that um, either on them or at least pushed the notion that boards had to become a more engaged player in the, the almost the oversight of management day to day regarding the three important uh, uh, areas of inquiry, talent, strategy, and risk. And maybe later, maybe now, maybe later, and if you want me to address some of the, what we found to be some really unique examples that can be applied even tomorrow in boardrooms that can really respond very effectively to what investors are thinking about, um, examples that have been applied that investors are saying, wow, we ought to do that in the company. And either now or later in the program, if you want me to address a couple of examples, I'm happy to do that. Dennis, the examples would be great. I'm going to throw it back to Andrew yeah. to draw the examples out. But I need to let everybody know uh, that you are listening to Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm, of course, your host, Mike Yassim. I'm here with Ann Greenhall, my good friend and colleague. And we are engaged in a dialogue with Dennis Carey, Vice Chair of Corn Ferry, and one of the co-authors of a new book, Talent, Strategy, and Risk. Anne. Oh, thank you, Mike. Uh, Dennis, I would love to hear an example. So please, share, share one with us. Yeah, you know, one of the things, Anne, that we tried very hard to do is not just make another book and talk about pablum, if you will, things that have been heard about before and over and over. And we didn't want a book that was esoteric, that only uh, people like Mike Osim alone would understand what we were talking about. 
so we, we tried to construct a book with practical examples, um, what, which we consider to be best in class examples that can change the arc in these three areas. I'll go through them quickly. Uh, uh, for example, uh, on strategy uh, and, and almost in combination with risk, we interviewed a fellow who I'm sure you've heard about. His name is Mr. Warren Buffett. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sure, a few of you have heard the name. So we got Warren on the phone through the good offices of Bill McNabb, and we spent almost two hours with him on the phone. And we said, you know, Warren, we're thinking about how companies can, can do a better job of mitigating the risk of an M&A transaction. As we all know, most deals fail. They, 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 they fail for a number of reasons. The most likely reason is around talent. You know, they acquire a company, they have not done a human capital audit. They've acquired the company based on a ton of financial and legal due diligence. But, you know, they, and they think that people must be great because the performance of the acquired company is great. And then, they, then everyone gets their change of control opportunity and they share, and then they leave the company and then they're left high dry. So there are a lot of reasons why companies fail. But Warren said, why is it that when companies entertain a, a merger and acquisition, the, uh, it's almost like a freight train. It's like a bandwagon effect. You know, somebody gets an idea. It sounds pretty cool. Uh, they contact the strategy firm, which typically is incented to get the deal done because they probably teed up the, the idea. They hire an investment banker. The banker is almost always compensated on getting the deal done. That's their incentive. So if you're sitting around a boardroom table, you're hearing all the reasons why you ought to go forward. So what Warren said is, look, it's very simple. I divide my board into two teams, a team and a blue team. And both teams hire their own investment banker. One is hired to say, no, don't do the deal. The other says, do the deal. Both uh, sides hire a strategy firm. One strategy firm argues not to do it. And one strategy firm argues to do it. And then Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett sit at the head of the table. And like a jury trial, they listen to all the evidence. Now, how many companies do you think do that? In the unworn Buffett environment, uh, Mike, Mike, I think you would agree it's it's probably slim and maybe none. Maybe none. Yeah. So here's a practical thing to be done tomorrow. Embrace this notion, and when you think of the, you know one of the biggest uh, derailers of corporate uh, performance is doing the wrong deal and getting in trouble. Think of HP with the UK deal. Think of. Think of AT&T's transaction uh, historically bringing in all the content. Now they're unbundling, they're unscrambling all the eggs. So there are a lot of, you know, the field is littered with, with decisions that were driven by bankers and strategy firms. And maybe a CEO is getting re ready to retire. And maybe once that big uh, press announcement, you know, two weeks before he leaves the company, uh, did a great deal, sounds great, terrific. And then Six months later, all the uh, all the bad news comes to the fore. So that, that's one example. Um, and Mike, the next one you'll know well, Mark Turner, who is the former CEO of WSFS. He chronicled for us a story which I think could also be applied in any in the context of any CEO succession. As we all know, in financial services, fintech disruptors are emerging 
uh, by the dozens. And many of the well-established banking institutions haven't even been able to spell the names of some of these disruptive companies emerging yet. Um, they don't even know who they are. They don't know what they're up to. They don't know what they can learn from them. So what WSFS did brilliantly, we thought, was we said, they said, look, Mark, you're, you know, you're probably a year away from retirement officially. Uh, we have uh, your counsel that the number two should be number one, maybe for the next year, but try on the Spurs, see how they do. And meanwhile, we're going to send you packing for a year. And, we're, and you're going to spend maybe, I think he ended up meeting with 70 companies over the course of the year, including some of the established companies like the Amazons, Facebooks, Google, et cetera. But he went out primarily with a mission to find out what these disruptors were up to, how they were capitalized, what stage were they in, in, in moving to maybe even the public markets, either through traditional means or through a SPAC, um, what technology did, were they thinking about that would change the entire landscape of the industry? And, and Mark went out on the road and he came back with four or five concrete examples of where WSFS could invest or partner or maybe even acquire some of these organizations. That we think, again, could be a terrific um, usable, practical, implementable, executable strategy for learning about the disruptors out there where you have singular focus on that, as well as simultaneously trying the number two out, seeing how he would work. And, and it was a win-win all the way around. Um, just a couple, I, I have one more I'd like to share, and I don't want to keep dominating the, the play here, but I get so excited about these because they seem so um, practical. Um, you know, it's not like I, I'm asking people to unscramble eggs. I'm asking them to just, you know, buy the dozen eggs and go home and either boil them or, or whatever you want to do with them. The other example is what I think could be, and Mike, you'll appreciate this, given the boards that lead book that you were working with uh, me on years ago. Um, most boards... Uh, do what we describe as check the box on board evaluation. So what I mean by that is every year the boards go around the table and they said, okay, how are we doing? Oh, we're doing great. Um, <laughs> how's sale, Sally, Bill, and Mary doing? Oh, they're doing great. Check the box, good. It takes 20 minutes and now they can tell the investors, hey, we've done board evaluation. Well, Bill McNabb said, you know, we don't believe half of these boards do it very well. Uh, in fact, it's more than half, about 80% we suspect don't do well at all. And it is simply checking the box. There's no meat on the bone, so to speak, when they're really challenged by investors. Uh, and this relates to composition of the board, it relates to the diversity of the board. Um, but what Ivan Seidenberg did years ago, which is now an old example, but it's, it's still fresh in terms of its uh, relevance uh, in this uh, current age, is that he simply handed out a survey and you couldn't name yourself, but you had to identify of the 11 directors around the table, what five or six directors can we not live without? Now, as a result of that survey, guess what? A couple of people's names did not appear on anyone's list. Nobody's. 
And then that gives you the impetus to go to that person and say, you know, we love you, uh, but there's an opportunity cost here. And your fellow directors apparently didn't think, you know, relative to the other members of the board, that you're adding as much value. Now they either give them a six month window to improve or they give them the bad news then and there. So the next proxy chat, uh, proxy year, uh, they phase out. That, that could be a, a very effective weapon for getting rid of what we would consider to be opportunity cost directors, as well as give you an opportunity to refresh the board, provide new thinking, uh, maybe a few strategic directors, if you will. I use that term because we, we talk about you know, political correctness. I talk about strategic correctness, getting a couple of members of the board who really understand the business, because that's what investors are now saying. How many people on your board really understand your business? How many people have actually run a P&L? How many people understand supply chain, if that's important to your business? How many of your directors think differently, think out of the box uh, and bring that set of experiences, diverse experience, diverse backgrounds to the table uh, to produce a better decision? Why the change from total shareholder return to talent strategy and risk? What's going on out there that led in particular for the business roundtable to issue this historic statement a couple of years ago that we ought to rethink TSR from what it was to talent strategy and risk. What's up? Well, there's a lot that's up. Um, and I think that the most important and poignant part that's up is the emphasis, a really new concerted emphasis and effort around ESG. And I, I like to, to use the term e, ESG. There are two E's in ESG. One is employees, one is the environment, uh, one is society, and one is governance. And the new class of investors, including you know even down to the day traders, I mean, are, are thinking about how the company should behave to survive for the long term. And Mike, you have better insight into some of the data of how many companies have vanished from the Fortune 500 over the last 25, 30 years. Um, to sustain a company, you have to be more attentive than ever uh, to employees. And I think the pandemic uh, put a double underscore under the need to be sensitive to employees. I think more companies realize without employees, you don't have anything. And by the way, the companies that had to differentiate, <laughs> differentiate which I don't envy, essential versus not essential employees, <laughs> it, it, created, it creates a real dilemma, I think, for management and boards because they you know you really don't want to think of any employees as as non-essential right but the, but the employee emphasis in the in the recent months year year and a half has been extraordinary the environment it goes without saying is now on the top of mind if if it isn't it better be soon uh one only has to look at the recent developments at exxon i mean who would have ever imagined that a small activist from called Engine One, which I have to confess I'd never heard of before, uh, they waged this proxy fight, would now have three seats on the Exxon board. I mean, it, it's extraordinary uh, what has happened. And Mike, you you asked what what recently has happened. You just have to talk about Exxon for an hour and you, you sort of get it. There, 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 is a, there is a huge, not just even momentum, it's a, sea change 
of thinking amongst investors about how they're going to react and how companies are going to react to investors who are going to start putting pressure on them through proxy challenges, yep. pressure on your own boards for board seats. How are you going to react to that? If you're sitting on idle, you're not going to you're not going to move, and you're going to get eclipsed. So I think the E for environment huge. Society, I think the the um, the events of last summer with the um, murder of George Floyd, I think created um, uh, a new uh, expectation among investors and employees alike for CEOs to take positions on social issues. I mean, who's who's ever heard of this? Where where um, CEOs are being told you better you better get out on in front of this new restrictive voting law in Georgia. Um, I mean, it's never happened to my knowledge. Maybe it has, but not to this level, not to this level of intensity. And governance, diversity, diversity, diversity. I think, you know, this is now front and center for every board. You know, of the 155 board searches we are now doing, uh, about 120 are mandatory diverse must be diverse uh, candidates uh, don't even bring us a candidate if it's another white male i mean that's what's happening right now in the g and esg uh, and the s obviously the pressure on CEOs to take social positions the employee emphasis obviously is a result accelerated by the pandemic and obviously environmental concerns are weighing heavily on all companies regardless of industry or geography or history, those things are not things that we were even talking about. Think about it, three years ago. Dennis, uh, I'm gonna ask a, a quick follow-up and then hand it over to Anne as follows. You hear and I often hear, and Anne has heard too, um, skepticism about this change that parallels, at least in my mind, what you sometimes hear when it comes to school reform. Reformers come along, a new principal comes in, and the teachers are, are saying, well, we'll just uh, outlast the, the, the new principal we have. We know how to do it. Uh, there's a wave of enthusiasm, but slightly on the cynical side, we're gonna out, outlast the bums that are trying to make us redo our direction. So Dennis, what, what is your response to that kind of questioning or even cynical, um, almost rejection of this kind of wave as, as you've, uh, the sea change that you've described. Well, what's your response? Well, I'll, I'll, put it, I'll use your academic uh, analog here. Uh, CEOs and board members don't have tenure. Yes. Okay. They, they serve <laughs> at the whim. Right. They are, they're there to serve the investor. And if the investor is moving in a different direction, they better worry about their future uh, because termination notices come pretty quickly if CEOs don't react to that kind of investor pressure. Uh, we did, I just, with Bill and Rom, just did a, a piece as well for the current issue of Harvard Business Review around you know, how to better communicate and engage with your investors. And one of the things we pointed out was most CEOs, ironically, most investor relations professionals, take what they get in terms of investors. And, and that, to a, a large extent, is just the way it is. But why don't they think about chasing investors that they want, 
to have in their stock more so than they do. They ought to go out and be really pushing to get investors who are in alignment with their strategic imperatives and objectives. And I think, you know, this, this 10 year example is relevant here that the CEOs that don't move fast enough, boards that don't move fast enough are gonna be eclipsed uh, very quickly. And that's already happening, quite frankly. So Dennis, I'm gonna uh, just remind listeners that uh, they are listening to us, Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Mike Hussein, I'm here with Ann Greenhall. And we are in a, a really interesting discussion with Dennis Carey, uh, co-author of Talent, Strategy, and Risk. And over to you. Oh, thank you, Mike. So, Dennis, let me follow your lead here. If CEOs were to go after the investors they want rather than the investors they inherit, what would that future look like? Well, it's a really good question, and it depends on industry. So, for example, mm -hmm. if you're if you're in the oil and gas industry right now, you've you've attracted a certain class of investors for a long time. Uh, but now comes engine one, right? Suddenly out of the blue, they show up at your doorstep. They've probably have written a letter to the CEO and they've demanded certain changes, right? Change in board composition, uh, maybe a change in the leadership structure, maybe a change in the way they use fossil fuels. Maybe it's a way in strategically to thinking about the utilization of new technologies down the road. So what do you wanna do? You wanna go maybe talk to some green companies and say, hey guys, we're gonna need you in our stock and we want you to support some of the new technologies that we believe will change the future for the better. We'll make it for a greener future. So most companies just sort of live with what they've inherited. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna shift gears because we see mm -hmm. it coming. But instead of relying on the investors who only believe in fossil fuels, we're gonna, meanwhile, we've got some technology we're investing through a new capital allocation program, we're gonna start investing more heavily in green technology. Let's go chase some green investors, get them on our stock. And by the way, uh, that could have short-circuited to some degree, uh, some of the de uh, demands of engine one. Uh, right. It's one fourth of the Exxon board. Yeah, that's so, such a great response. And I remember uh, Mike from speaking with you and reading some chapters of one of your books that you wrote with Harbir on strategy and leadership. You talked about Indra Nui, PepsiCo, who referred to activist investors as free consultants. <laughs> that's a good analogy. I thought that was wonderful. And that's sort of what you're suggesting here, rather than fight it, um, hear, hear the feedback <laughs> and respond. You know, and that's exactly the thrust of the article we just completed. And if I, if Mike, I hope you don't get us for uh, what is it called uh, when you copy somebody else's ideas? <laughs> I, I wasn't aware. Plagiarism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, that's exactly our conclusion as well, and that you know that um, they are like free consultants. You know that. Yeah. They, they don't always, in fact, it was interesting, and I won't, I won't cite some of the quotes in the article, but the thrust of it was some of these activists have great ideas, but they're very difficult personalities. Yes. But only mm -hmm. change their personality and be a little kinder, gentler, you know, they could really add a lot of value. Uh, but unfortunately, what ha tends to happen is you get into sort of a Mexican standoff at the border. <laughs> 
and you uh, you you immediately put your flag in the soil, and the other guy puts his flag in the soil. And before you know it, you're you're sort of at war. You're not even sure that what the war is about. Um, yeah. And it may be that the, the one side has an idea that if you just thought about it and reflect on it, said, "Hey, that's not a bad idea." Yeah. So the, the 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 common misconception I think about activists for the most part is they're not well they're not they're never stupid. Right. Uh, a right. lot of work. They have white papers out the kazoo and <laughs> you bring them in. You know you might you know embarrassment might be one of the outcomes, but you're going to learn a lot. Yeah, yeah. You always have to embrace what they're suggesting, and they're going to learn a lot too. By the way, if you yeah. just sit down and listen to each other, and hopefully you'll have an activist who is reasonable and not cantankerous, like some of them are, uh, and hopefully have a strategy of getting along and fixing it so all investors can benefit from that. Yeah. Dennis, I'll hand right back to Mike, but you were reminding me of a wonderful book by Sheila Heen and Robert Stone, and they have a wonderful comment about hearing the coaching in the criticism. So even if the criticism is coming from a hypocrite, <laughs> the critique might still be good feedback. And so that's a great tip to our uh, beleaguered boards. <laughs> Mike, back to you. So Dennis, uh, uh, a little bit of a preface here for a question. Uh, there's a phrase around in the great outdoors when you're traversing a, a ridge or heading for a mountain, it's good to think like a guide, think like a guide. And a guide, of course, has to think about everything, you know, where they're going, how they're going to get there, what are the risk factors, what to do in case you get uh, in, into trouble. And to transport that, that concept, think like a guide into the world you're in, we often hear uh, people that you work with, uh, for example, Ed Breen at, at DuPont, uh, Raj Gupta, who ran for a while, Roman Haas, uh, a big chemical company at the time, the phrase, think like a activist, think like an activist. So if you could take that apart, what does it mean to, in that phrase, to be urged, if you are a senior manager, to think like an activist? Well, you know, activists usually show up at the door for just a couple of reasons. The primary one is your company is performing poorly, right? Um, that's not to say that activists don't get into high-performing companies. They do. Uh, they've gotten into Microsoft. They've gotten into some really high-performance places. But on balance, uh, performance criteria are the first thing that activists will look at. In other words, can they make more money with what the company is uh, than what it's currently doing to make money. Um, so you want to think, first of all, about uh, your balance sheet, your allocation of capital, and are you using that money to your advantage as an enterprise? Do you know your competitive threats and opportunities? And can you perform better in terms of uh, juicing the stock? Because activists sort of do have, initially for the most part, a shorter term framework. Um, in addition, they, they worry about portfolio, right? And if you're really smart as a CEO, you want to take a look at your own portfolio and say, okay, if somebody comes into my stock, do we have the right mix of, of uh, verticals in the enterprise? And could, they, could we squeeze more value? Which typically, by the way, uh, based on the research I've seen, you can squeeze more value out of your stock if you spin off the right play especially if it's a pure play, which then becomes potentially an acquisition. 
target was just stock. So you want to think like the short timer or short termer. What are the things that you can do in the short run that will keep them at bay while you continue to think about the balance with long-term holders, equity holders, and create longer-term shareholder value? But yes, we, in fact, Mike, you and I wrote an article about thinking like an activist some time back. And there's no question that if you think about, it, sort of think about the negatives. It, it reminds me of the Chris Argerus article years ago. He used the term, Making the, un, the, making the undiscussed bill and the undiscussability discussable. So think about the things you normally wouldn't talk about because you're already enamored with your own success. You know, you're sitting there basically, in most cases, bragging to the board as a CEO saying, hey, look what we've done, we're doing this, we've got a great plan there. We're good. But then why don't you think about the negative? What are the things on the horizon that if a short timer comes into your stock, how are you going to respond? Uh, some companies have actually set up sort of um, uh, a framework around similar to, to these uh, people who are hired uh, to attack cyber risk in a company. They, they hire the people who are actually breaking in before, right? They're, they're people who are good, good hackers. They bring them in say, okay, if you came in our company, where are our vulnerabilities? That's what you have to think like as a activist, um, to your point. Dennis, um, I'm just gonna remind people one last time that they are of course listening to Sirius XM channel 132, Leadership in Action, and Ann Greenhall and I, Mike Yusim, we are talking with you, Dennis Carey, author of a new book, co-author of a new book, Talent, Strategy, Risk, and Dennis, probably our last question before we begin to do our um, after action review, I'm gonna ask listeners to be anticipating that and thinking of their own takeaways, so to speak. Uh, most of our listeners are probably not uh, uh, involved in publicly traded companies, or at least many of them for sure are not. Help us understand how these ideas that have developed primarily around publicly traded, publicly listed companies, should apply also to those companies that are private or too small to be listed at the moment. Sure. So for, for the people out there who are leading startups and unlisted enterprises, uh, how does um, TSR, how should TSR affect their own thinking? What do you think? Well, it's a good question. I would argue that uh, leadership is, uh, what is the term, ubiquitous? It's a, you know, it can be applied anywhere. It's uh, I think Anne's, uh, Anne's uh, example of the crossing guard at the outset was perfect. I mean, it, it, it applies to everything we do, right? Uh, how you treat people. And I know, Mike, you, you and I uh, teach together occasionally at, at Wharton. And um, I like to use the, the letters representing leadership that apply to every, every situation. L, starting with leadership, is you, you should be a good listener. Uh, whether it's public, private, uh, family, business, whatever it is, or even a crossing guard, right? You, you want to listen. If you don't listen, uh, my dad used to say we're born with two ears and one mouth for a really good reason. Uh, <laughs> the, other, the other example is you never learn something when you're talking. Think about it. You don't. You, you only learn when you're listening. So any good leader has to learn how to listen. Um, empathy, 
you know, caring about other people is really important. And it's becoming, I, I think it was magnified during the pandemic. You know, how are, do CEOs really care about us? Does anybody care about us? We're sitting at home all alone on a Zoom call all day. You know, so the ability to be empathetic and to care is a signature quality of leadership. I remember that, um, you know, Alan Mulally at Ford, th this was his first, when, when I asked him about leadership, he said, be empathetic. If you're not empathetic, you're not gonna last long. Uh, and it's tied to A, leadership, authenticity. Uh, you have to be, you gotta be who you are. You can't put on, sort of try to be somebody you're not. It's really hard to fake uh, being a nice person if you're not a nice person. So if you're not a nice person, you probably ought to go run a jail uh, prison, you know, do something, you know, be a leader in another environment. I think it was Douglas McGregor who used, used to say that leadership characteristics depend on the industry you're in and what kind of enterprise you're running. So, you know, you got to think about, you know, these issues relative to uh, those other institutions. And by the way, Dennis, we got about two minutes to go. So I think we're going to have to get the abbreviated form so far. Uh, the real one then. D for delegation. Good. Uh, e for executes, uh, borrowing Ram Sharon's book on execution. Gets things done. Uh, R for results and risk balanced. Create a risk profile both ways. S for strategic. Uh, the H, uh, I have three H's. Humor, typically self-deprecating humor is helpful. Uh, humility and honesty. Um, the I for uh, uh, three other things, integrity, innovation, and being intuitive. And the P is an easy one, passionate about people. Uh, if you're not passionate about people, you shouldn't be a leader anywhere. That's correct. Dennis, wonderful. You proved the point that what we're talking about is uh, universally applicable, whether you're running yeah. a community service group or organizing an event for the July 4th weekend, as Anna's doing, or, or running uh, Exxon or General Motors. Let's do our after-action review. Uh, just to repeat what, uh, what the purpose here is, to make certain we can walk away from this program with some really actionable ideas or thoughts that will carry us in the future. And let's start with you. What, what points would you okay. like to keep subtly focused on? Yeah, well, Dennis, thank you so much. And I love the acronym. I've written everything down. And I think I'll underscore a point that you made that is relevant to the organization and also the individual and interpersonal and groups. And that is be prepared to discuss the undiscussable. Bring it up. <laughs> because if you don't, uh, Preston Klein, <laughs> Mike, who you know used to be on our uh, in our organization used to say, what you don't own will own you. So mm -hmm. I think discussing the undiscussable is a great takeaway. Yep. I wrote that down myself. Dennis, how about you? <laughs> Main points. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to borrow from what Ann just said um, it, with a slightly different twist. And that, and we wrote in the book that if you're in a boardroom or in a leadership setting or in any setting, um, you should be in an environment where there's no such thing as a stupid question. You know, sometimes the stupid questions provoke the most thoughtful reactions and response and, hey, we didn't think of that. Um, be, be prepared to ask the questions that 
you might be worried about raising, but by, by golly, if you have an environment where it's, you, can't, you don't be ashamed, you're not ashamed to ask, mm -hmm. I think it's a stupid question, you might be surprised. That's great. <laughs> Dennis, uh, thank you on that. Uh, here's my final thought uh, on, on my part. It's, it's a really a new era. It's, it's, a, it's a different world we're coming into and we can't lead, we can't govern as if it's 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. We got to lead and govern as if we're going to be five years from now or 10 years. We, got, we have to lead and govern for the future. And TSR helped define an era, let's say approximately from the year 1990 up through about 2010. But since then, the world has uh, changed in so many ways. And my own prediction is in the next couple of years for people to govern well, to serve in leadership positions, whether it's a hospital, a community group, uh, for a startup or a for-profit company, you're really gonna have to think about talent, strategy, and risk on the way to producing value for all those stakeholders. So, all right, Dennis, uh, a profound thank you for your willingness to come onto the program. If you know, of course, where to acquire the book, how would they find out more about you? Um, well, the, I, my picture is in most po post offices across the country. <laughs> just kidding, right? Yes. <laughs> so uh, just uh, you can Google me, at Dennis Carey. Dennis Carey, great. Mm -hmm. So, uh, well, Dennis, a pleasure to have you again. It, uh, it's wonderful to have you back. Uh, read, you. read the book, everybody. I, I personally know it well. I've read the whole thing, Talent, Strategy, and Risk, How Investors and Boards are redefining TSR and in that sense also leading um, the way forward in, in a new world that we're entering. Once again, special thanks, of course, to Dennis. I want to thank Anne for joining me today. Patty Hall, our outstanding producer, and our sound engineer, Chris Took. I'm Mike Usain, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action, business radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132 at the University of Pennsylvania. Stay tuned, come back, we will reappear in one week. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.